Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, some parts of your word seem more to inform us, give us information, and other parts seem more to challenge us, speak to our will, our affections, our choices. These words of your son today that we look at do both, but there are dangers, dangers of the familiarity of these words, dangers that we will be thinking of others who we think need to hear these words rather than ourselves as we need to hear them. Dangers we will hear and not heed, not act, not do anything with what we hear. Be like forgetful hearers that James warns against who see their face in a mirror and walk away and immediately forget what they saw. All of us need your Spirit's ministry in our hearts. All of us do as we deal with these crucial, pivotal truths. I need your Spirit as I preach. We all need your Spirit as we hear. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in Matthew 16, we're still in a very intense scene. This is a very intense scene. Jesus has cut down right to the core issue and asked the uh, apostles frontally, who do you say that I am? Peter had spoken up with the truth, and Jesus blessed him. Jesus named him Rock and spoke of the church that he would build, and he would found it on this truth that Peter had just confessed. And then, after telling them that they were not the people to tell anybody that he was the Christ yet, he did a little Bible study, showing them the necessity of his coming death in Jerusalem, his burial and his resurrection. And Peter had rebuked him. Pause every time you think about that. I pause every time I read that. I'd shake my head inwardly, sometimes outwardly. Peter rebuked Jesus. He didn't just say, oh, surely not, but he took Jesus aside and said, don't say that. You're wrong. This will never happen to you. Peter rebuked Jesus, and Jesus scorched Peter and then gave him another name. He'd called him Rock. Now he calls him Satan and tells him to get back behind him. Meanwhile, you've lost thought of the disciples, so just picture them standing there watching all this happen. You know, and all this unfolds, and then Jesus turns to them. (laughs) And so I think you could be sure that when Jesus turns from Peter to them, every piece of chewing gum has been swallowed, every mouth is dry, every palm is cold, and they're all wanting to go... We didn't say that. (laughs) We didn't say that. What is he going to say to them now? Would you want to be in their sandals at that point? But you see, Peter's lapse had given Jesus an opportunity to get right to the very heart of what it meant to be his disciple. And what he says to them, he says to us, and it's very little understood and even less embraced and lived. So let's dive in. We're going to dive in today hard and deep. So, you know, chins tucked in, hands folded over another in the arrow position. We're going to take a deep dive into what Jesus says to the apostles, what he says to us about what it means to be his disciple, the path of Christ's disciples. So Roman Roman numeral one, Jesus lays right down for us what Christ's disciples must do in verse 24. And I have, as usual, translated this for you in your outline. 
In verse 24, he says, If one wants to come after me, let him disown himself and, take up, and let him take up his cross and let him follow me. So first, there is one paramount premise. Then Jesus says to his disciples, said to his disciples, if one wants. Now, those words are, seem so small that I think we skip right over them to, them to the part that grabs our attention, but we mustn't. We've got to look at those words. Those are all important, as I will show you. If one wants, he says. So first he says anyone. If one, he just uses the indefinite pronoun tis. Could be anybody. If anybody. If someone. And in one way this is totally open. In another way it's totally closed. It's totally open in the way that, like Paul says in uh, Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The call goes out to all to repent and believe in Jesus. When Scripture says that it is uh, God's will that all come to a knowledge of the truth, that they all be saved, that's what it's talking about. That's his preceptive will. He has commanded all people to be saved. So this is open to any who hears that sound. Every person is called to come after Jesus, to repent and believe in him. But it's also closed in that if you're going to come after him, this is the way to do it. There aren't five ways, there aren't 25 ways, there aren't 35 ways. There is one way, and Jesus is going to spell it exactly the way that anyone who wishes to come after him, who wants to come after him, must come after him. This is the way. And so he says, if anyone wants, now that word means desires or wills. Let me show you two, uh, two verses with this in action. If you're in Matthew, you could turn back to chapter 1, verse 19. Good Christmas verse. Joseph has learned that his fiancée is pregnant. He knows it's not him. He is a God-fearing, law-abiding Jew and is faced with the prospect of marrying someone who, to his mind, has surely been unfaithful to him already, and they're not even wed. So as he ponders this, we read in verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and, and I translate that, and yet, being a righteous man, and yet not wanting. There's this same verb Jesus uses in Matthew 16 fellow, not wanting, not being willing to disgrace her, planned or decided to send her away secretly. So his will is pointed to in what he doesn't want to do. He's got to deal with his situation, but he doesn't want to disgrace her. It's within his right to. He could righteously do that. He could righteously ruin her life for all time by denouncing her as unfaithful and publicly dismissing her. But he doesn't want to disgrace her. That's not his will. That's not what his heart desires. And so he chooses something else in accord with his heart's desire. He chooses a quieter path that will expose her to less disgrace and less harm. Now, a totally different use, Matthew 7, 12. Matthew 7, 12. Perhaps you know Matthew 7, 12. It's the so-called golden rule. The verb is used there. Jesus says, therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Want, whatever it's your desire, your will, you would like someone to do this, so you do this for them. There's two illustrations of the word will uh, among many. It's a common word. And so this is the desire of a person's heart. Jesus says, if it is the desire of a person's heart to follow me, then this is what he must do. If this is what he wants to do, this is the, the course he must take. Now, there's two problems with this. 
The first problem, that, at least to the minds of many, is it sounds to them like works. It sounds to them like this is a path to salvation of works. So as if Jesus is saying, well, if you want to go to heaven and you want to be saved, the way to merit your salvation is self-denial and following me and dying to yourself. This, this is the way to be born again. In fact, there's a popular song that puts it that way. Only by dying to yourself can you re- be reborn to live. So this is the path to new birth. And they say, well, that sounds like works. And I agree, if you describe it that way, it does sound like works, yes. But that's not at all what we're seeing here. That's the first problem, though. The second problem is the more fundamental problem. And what's the more fundamental problem? Well, Jesus saying, if you, is saying, if we want to follow him, then what it necessarily means is what? Disowning ourselves taking up our cross so that we die to ourself and following him instead of ourself. What's the problem? Nobody's going to want to do that. Nobody's going to want to do that. That's not an overstatement. That will never come out of the fallen heart of man. In Genesis 6, God looks at the hearts of all men and he says that those hearts are fully given to do evil all day long. And after the flood, even saving Noah and his family, he says the same thing in Genesis chapter 8. In the Psalms, he looks down on the sons of men to see if anyone seeks after God, and they've all gone aside, he says. Or you can't say it more uh, pungently using the noun form of this verb than in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, then you just need to make yourself alive, right? You go do that. But that is the problem, and this is universal. Your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, but Jesus is saying to turn my back on the world, but this is the way I live apart from Christ. According to the ruler of the power of the air, why that's Satan who just uh, spoken through Peter's mouth. Uh, The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, listen, doing the desires of the flesh. And that word translated desires is thelema, just the noun form of this verb. The things the flesh want to do. How does a person live outside of Christ? How does every last person left to himself live outside of Christ? According to the will of his flesh. And will the flesh ever want to deny itself and die to itself and follow Christ? Never. Romans 8 says that the mind of the flesh is hatred against God. It does not submit to the law of God. And what's the next thing he says? It cannot. It is not anywhere in the will of the... Remember, you go a long way toward understanding what the Bible teaches if you understand the will biblically. The will is the heart making choices. The will is free to choose anything the heart wants to do, and that way the will is free. But is the heart free? This is biblical anthropology 101. No, the heart is dead and enslaved to sin and can never free itself. So that's the second problem. I'd say that's the larger problem. (laughs) The two problems with if anyone wills to come after me, if anyone wants to come after me is first, it sounds like works to some people because you got to do all these things. And secondly, nobody will want to. Left to himself, nobody will want to. So those are two problems. God has one solution. What is God's one solution to both of those problems? New birth. 
new birth, new creation, a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit. Ephesians 2.10, we read verses 1 through 3, but what does 2.10 say? Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, his poema, his, well, poem is the word we get from that Greek word. It means a thing made. We are his workmanship. He makes us, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works. So I engage in these good works when God creates me in Christ Jesus. And do I create myself? Well, I try, and it didn't work out well. But when God creates me, He creates me anew, gives me a new heart, writes His laws on it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. How does a sinner come to want to follow Jesus? when he's a new creation, when God makes him anew. And all of this is by the sovereign grace of God. Sovereign meaning he doesn't help us save ourselves. He saves us. So we read in John 3, we read this at the start of the service. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water, a picture of cleansing. Spirit, the Holy Spirit, giving us new birth. And how does that happen? How do I make that happen? I don't make that happen any any more than I make the wind blow. That's a nice analogy. Where would I get that? That's what Jesus says in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's been born of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit of God. I don't control it. It happens to me. When God wills. When God wills. Now Romans 9, 15, and 16, and 17 teach us about that and use the same word that Jesus uses, only of God. Romans 9, 15, 16, you know these words. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills. There's the word that Jesus uses. It doesn't come from our will. It doesn't start with our will or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then in verse 18, if we didn't get the point, he says, so then he has mercy on whom he wills. There's the same verb, thelo. Whom he wills, whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. This is the sovereignty of God as the Bible teaches it. So when he wills to save a person, he creates him anew and gives him new birth, shows him mercy, gives him a new heart makes him a new person. And with that new heart comes a new will. I freely now want what I hated before. I freely want to do what I before abominated doing. Uh, There's a verse that talks about exactly that and uses the verb. Are you thinking of it maybe? What is a verse that talks about how we will to do God's will? That's Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want to follow Jesus when God works in my heart, makes me a new person, gives me new birth, and from that new heart comes a new desire, comes a new will. So it's very simple, and I'll I'll say if, if that didn't seem simple to you, I'd be happy to explain it more, but I can say it very simply. You show me anyone who wants to come after Jesus and I'll show you someone who's been born again. 
Anyone who wants to come after Jesus means there's a new creation, means there's a new person by the Spirit of God. So uh, that, that's, that's God's solution to those two problems. What I do comes out of the work of grace in my heart, giving me a new heart, which now has new desires and a new will. And then Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, that's his next word, to come after me. And as I point out in the footnote, the word he uses after is the the same word he just used to Peter when he says, get back behind me, Satan. It's the same word. It just would sound very awkward in this translation if anyone wants to come behind me. But it is the same word. So he's just told Peter to get back behind him, and now he explains what it means to be behind him. Do you see that? These words flow right after what he said to Peter in rebuke. And all the apostles are hearing this. And so now he's explaining to all of them what it means to be where they ought to be. And that's behind him. Not by his side advising him and not in front trying to lead him as Peter had done. So here's what it means to come after me. If anyone wants, because he's a new creature, to come after me, to to get behind me. Well, he says this is for anyone then. So anyone who has any desire to come after Christ has to go this way. If we say, well, I don't want to go that way, well then, you don't want to go after Christ. You don't have that new will. But with that new will, this is the path of discipleship. Let me reinflect that. This is the path of discipleship. So letter B then. There are two necessary negative commands, two necessary negative things to do before the positive command. So if anyone wants to come after me, Jesus says, let him disown himself and let him take up his cross. So first, the first negative command, the first necessary negative command is disown yourself. Disown yourself. Disown yourself. Well, I think it'll help us clear this up if we first talk about what this doesn't mean, because there are a lot of misunderstandings of this, a lot of uh, misapplications of this. So first, what it does not mean is it does not mean denying myself good gifts of God. There's a very respected old dictionary, Bible dictionary, that has an article on self-denial. I I went there for enlightenment, and instead I found this. (laughs) It's an article on self-denial, and the very learned writer, the right right reverend somebody, uh, talks about self-denial, and immediately, in explaining self-denial, he wants to tell us about five practices by which people achieve self-denial. And they are fasting, celibacy, almsgiving, vigils, and the refusal of luxury in the surroundings of life. So in other words, the way to deny myself is to deny myself God's gift of food, God's gift of intimacy in marriage, God's gift of an income, God's gift of sleep, and God's gift of good things to enjoy in life. Now you say, well, that sounds very pious. Well, I'll give you this. It sounds very religious. Um, in the worst sense of the word, this is legalism. That is legalism. And although it may sound righteous and pious to you, it is an exact misunderstanding of Jesus' word. And to me, it is modern Phariseeism, and it's a study in how to go exactly wrong on what he says. It, 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 to me, it's, I mean, it's almost kind of a wonder. It's almost like you're looking at an artistic work of wrongheadedness, you know? Because Jesus says, deny yourself... And the first thing they think is, oh yes, here's, here's five things myself can do to deny myself. 
I can get myself involved in all these religious activities, and once I've done all these things, then that's self-denial. But that's you. You're doing all that to achieve this. You're hearing self-denial as meaning self-doing more religious things or, or saying no to God's good gifts. Like that's what Jesus is talking about. But the, the, the great important thing here is, if you know grammar, there's no indirect object here. So a certain percentage here are going, oh yes, I understand that perfectly. And everybody who's like me in school, I don't know what an indirect object is. What that means is Jesus doesn't say, deny yourself food or deny yourself sleep, or deny yourself luxury, or deny yourself intimacy in marriage. What does he say? Deny yourself. He denied yourself. Not deny myself things, deny myself. Well, we're going to have to open that up and see what that means. So first, it does not mean denying myself God's good gifts. Secondly, it does not mean obliterating my personality. Now, that's where a pantheist would hear Jesus wrong. A pantheist thinks that our greatest goal is just to sort of melt down into God, like C.S. Lewis describes it in one of his books, like a, a little lead soldier melting down into a pool of lead, you know, and, and all the paint just gets mixed up in the whole pool. And that's the idea of pantheism. Beyond personality is one of the phrases pantheists use. And God is beyond personality, and our goal is to go beyond that too and just become one with oneness and lose, lose all the things that make us individuals. But I don't know. Why did God make so many individuals if he didn't want individuals? The, the great thing that one unbeliever was asking me once was, well, if there's not life on other stars, why did God make so many different stars? And Well, there's not life on stars, but assuming there's planets, why did God make so many of them? And, and I just said, well, why do you make so many different kind of flowers <laughs> and colors of roses? He could have just made the one, right? But he made yellow ones and orange ones and blue ones and white ones. He made this great constellation. Why? Well, because he loves beauty. That shows him. That glorifies him. So he made us to be individuals. He means us to be individuals. He doesn't necessarily mean everybody to love squash or hate squash or love country music or hate country music. God is glorified by us being individuals and as individuals loving him and submitting to his will. He makes personality. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's not saying stop being a person. He's not saying lose the things that make you an individual, that are, that are God-created and part of God's wonderful work in you. So those are two things it does not mean. Let's talk about what it does mean. What does it mean? Well, we need to understand the issue, and that's the only way to understand what Jesus means. What is the issue? What's the problem? Well, I am, just for starters, <laughs> I am the problem. My fallen self in Adam what I am apart from Christ and because of Adam. Where Adam took me with his rebellion against God as my representative and the whole race's representative. Where he put me is my problem. Uh, myself. Myself that wants to be God. And that's the bottom line. What was the sales pitch to Adam and Eve? You eat this fruit and you will be like God. And that's what every child of Adam wants. And that's the problem. There can only be one God, and it's not us. That's the problem, though. That is in our deepest self. That's in the core of ourself. That is so in ourselves that people who are trying to understand Christianity apart from the work of the Holy Spirit don't understand it because of this very point. They just don't understand it. 
uh, myself that is prone to what we talked about Satan's methods last week. It's prone to self-interest and self-pity and self-will and self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. That's myself, and that's my problem. Myself that is dead in trespasses and sins. Myself that willingly and gladly walks in accordance with the course of this age, the prince of the power of the air, doing the wills of the flesh. That's my problem. My problem is myself. And no amount of legalistic methods can kill that self. They just feed it. They make it more religious, but they don't kill it. And it's that which Jesus says we must deny. We, need, we must deny the entire idea that I can be God or take God's place. The entire idea that I can be self-sufficient. The entire idea that my righteousness, and, and as a President famously said, uh, living up to my standards is the real issue. Whether I live up to my standard. Becoming a Christian means denying that whole thing. Uh, the whole idea that I am ultimate. Including, in context... Your highest religious ideas, Peter. Because Peter had just given words to Satan's thoughts when he told Jesus not to go the way of the cross. But he was walking according to his flesh at that moment. He was thinking Satan's way at that moment. Oh, but it was religious and it was pious and he, it didn't feel bad at all coming out of his mouth. But it was. And that's what Jesus calls us to deny. Peter just heard what the Bible said. Peter had just heard what Jesus said must happen. And Peter said, no, I have better insight. No, that mustn't happen. Jesus says that's what you need to deny. So I must disown myself as God. I must unthrone myself as God. I remember the day I, I, I confessed Christ, the day I pr prayed for Jesus to be my Savior, the fellow who led me to Christ used a little tract, and it showed a picture of the throne of my heart and me on it and everything going to hell in a handbasket. And I said, that's exactly right. How could I have said that? I was raised to love myself. I said that only because the Holy Spirit had been pounding me like a bongo drum. <laughs> for weeks and months, showing me what my heart was, showing me who I was. And when I saw this picture of what the issue was, me on the throne, and I was told that I need to call on Jesus so he could sit on that throne, I said, that is exactly what I need. And I tell you, that came from nowhere inside of my nature. That was the sovereign work of the grace of God in my heart. And that's what conversion is. Deny yourself, he says. Deny your fallen self in Adam. Disown yourself. Secondly, take up your cross, he says. Take up your cross, number two. Take up your cross. Well, we better start with talking about what that doesn't mean too because there are a lot of misunderstandings about that. Your cross does not mean difficulties. It does not mean trials. It doesn't mean aches and pains. It's not your in-laws. It's not your children. It's not even your parents. It's not even your pastor. <laughs> Those things aren't crosses. They may be difficulties, challenges, pains. They may even be royal pains at times. But they're not crosses. Let me give you a little clue here. Here's, here's a pro tip. Are you ready? Here it comes. If it doesn't kill you, it's not a cross. 
Doesn't that make sense? If it doesn't kill you, it's not a cross. Those things don't kill you. Those things hurt and inconvenience and challenge, but they don't kill us. The cross is where we go to die. So let's talk now about what it does mean. It means the most radical break imaginable with my life outside of Christ. It means that I am this outside of Christ, and I disown that, and I die to that as if I were on a cross. As surely as if I were on a cross, I die to that. So this is a radical break with what I am outside of Christ, what I was outside of Christ. That's what it means. Uh, And in full fulfillment, once Jesus has died on the cross and the Holy Spirit has come, the apostles will show us uh, in chapters like Romans 6 that that involves our death to sin in Christ. That when he dies, we die. He dies with relation to sin. We die with relation to sin. And we break with the whole life under the lordship of sin. But here at this point, he puts it very vividly and very crisply in a way that everybody could get the same mental image. I say cross to you, and maybe you think of a a lovely sparkling piece of jewelry, or you think of a sculpture, or perhaps you think of our wooden cross out there. This is not what anyone who heard Jesus would have thought. They would have thought the same thing as if I'd said, take up his gallows and follow me. Take up his firing squad. Take up his electric chair and follow me. There's only one thing people would have thought, not jewelry. Death. 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 Humiliating, shameful, agonizing, dead death. So that's, that's the picture that he has here. The most radical break possible with our life outside of him. Uh, and so you can see in that, that along with uh, taking up our cross and dying to our old life, we're specifically also dying for the lust we all have for being admired and being accepted and being looked on with uh, uh, admiration because that's not the death on the cross. And people don't look at somebody dying on a cross and admire him and think what a noble thing he's doing. What they think is, what must he have done? What must he have done? That's the worst way to die. That's Rome's worst punishment. He must be a real low life. He must be a, a, a nobody and a miserable bad nobody. That's what death on the cross means. And so our death is the death of our pride. It's the death. It should be the point at which we lose all desire of being liked by the world. And this is being such a problem in America with would-be evangelical leaders today. You can just see that inside them burning very brightly still is that great desire to be liked by the world. And that's the first thing that's supposed to go. (laughs) Seriously, do you see that? I mean, the first thing that I should lose is the desire to be admired by people who hate God. And yet, it still burns. But every time I take up the cross, that should be the end of that. How often should I take up the cross? We'll get to that later. So when must this happen is my next question. When must we take up, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? Should that happen at the start of our life of faith? Yes, amen. That is where it starts. That's exactly where it starts. Yes, this is what a convert does. When a convert's been born again, he denies himself picks up his cross, and he gets to following Jesus. And it's only that person who can follow Jesus. And it always is only that person who can follow Jesus. So what I'm saying is, it's not like, well, to become a Christian, I need to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow Jesus. But to continue walking with Jesus, I can welcome myself back in 
lay aside my cross and go wherever I want. (laughs) Do you follow me? The way the life starts is the way it continues. See, those two verbs are punctiliar. Their syntax is punctiliar, but the idea of the words is. That is to say, the idea of disowning myself, well, that sounds like something you just do decisively. And the idea of picking up my cross, well, that's just that's an action you take. But the verb for following, well, that's a present tense because the idea of following is something that goes on and on and on, right? You don't just follow for a second and then stop. This is a lifetime call to follow Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is all the time you're following me, the way you've got to follow me is as a person who disowns himself and has taken up his cross. That remains the only way to follow Jesus. And so if you look up Luke 9.23, Luke 9.23, the way Jesus quotes Luke's, uh, the way Luke quotes Jesus saying this in Luke 9.23 is if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny myself and take up his cross. And then he adds a word. Do you know what that word is? Daily. And the Greek is a little more literally day after day after day after day. Every day. He must do this every day. This is the tenor of the Christian life. And note well one more thing, number three, the word your. One must disown himself, he must take up his his cross. You must disown yourself, you must take up your cross. You can't do this for anyone else, and no one else can do this for you. Every parent wishes he could do it for his children. Every parent who sees his children straying wishes he could do this for them but we can't. The most we can do is point you to Christ and live a life that points to Christ and show you the way to Christ. But each of you children must take up your own cross. You must deny your own self. You must follow Christ. The pastor can't do this for you. Your husband and wife can't do this for you. Each of us must do this. And hearing a sermon about it doesn't count. And hearing a sermon, and even if you thought it was a decent sermon, didn't have any arguments, doesn't count. It's a call to action. There's something we must individually do or we have no part of this. You see? Letter C, there is one necessary positive command and let him follow me. And let him follow me. Now what does that mean? Well, first I want to say let's not be silly about this. You say, what's silly? Well, silly is what I called a paleo-dispensational thing I read about this years ago, and I'm a dispensationalist. But these are paleo-dispensationalists who said that this, this doesn't apply to us because following Jesus only means walking where his body is going, walking behind his body. It just literally means that. That's silly. I mean, that's just silly. Some dispensationalists have done so much to make these words not apply to us, but they do. And the Bible's full of that. First uh, Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Imitators of Christ. That's a call to a Christian church. Just imitating Christ totally different than following him? <laughs> no. Let's not be silly. It's the same idea. Paul says it again in Ephesians 5, where he says... Uh, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. So I'm to imitate Christ in his self-sacrificing love. Or another word you could say, I'm to follow Christ. 1 Peter 2.21, 1 
For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an exemplar, a pattern to copy, that you should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 So yes, let's not be silly about it. Let's be Christian about it. It's something that Christians are called to do, to walk after Jesus, to walk as he walked, as John says, to look to him as our great example of what a, a real godly man would live like. What does this mean? Secondly, number two, how can this be? And I mean, I just think this through. So I just denied myself and I took up my cross. So what am I? Well, I'm dead. But I'm supposed to follow. How does that dead person follow? Doesn't that sound like life from death? I'm, al- I'm dead and yet I follow. That sounds like life from death. Well, yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Back to, second, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul describes this. In Ephesians 2.1, remember what does, he say? what does he say? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, so I'm, I'm dead. But verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what does he say? Made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God, the whole thing. Grace, faith, salvation, all a gift of God. Because, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So how do I follow Jesus when I'm a dead person? I follow him with the new life he gives me. I'm dead to my old Adam life outside of Christ, but I'm alive with my new gift of God life, my life in Christ, in fact, the life of Christ. What does Paul say in that wonderful verse? I have been crucified with Christ. What's, what's a person who's been crucified with Christ? Dead. In fact, that's his next words. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 and following. So there it is. Dead, yet alive. Dead to my old life, alive to a new life of following him. So that's the path of discipleship. Why must I walk that path? Jesus gives three reasons, Roman numeral two. Three reasons. Notice four, three times. F-O-R, four, three times. Three reasons Jesus gives us. First, in verse 25, because of fallen world irony. This fallen world is created in irony for us. Verse 25, four, because whoever wants to save his soul will lose it. But whoever loses his soul on account of me will find it. Hmm, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? It is ironic. If I want to save my soul, I lose it. But if I lose it, I find it? What? That's got to puzzle you. It sure has puzzled me. So on the one hand, Jesus says, wanting to save my soul is losing my soul. Wanting to save my soul is losing my soul. Now, look, this does not mean losing my desire for physical life or my appetite or or all these good things that are gifts of God. That's not what he's talking about. In context, when he says whoever wants to save his soul, is he saying the person who wants to preserve his self-godhood, the soul that he's to deny, that he's to die to. But whoever wants to preserve that, 
Whoever wants to save that rebellion against God, that self-will, that self-sufficiency, well, he says, ironically, in his desire to save his soul, what's actually going to happen is he's going to lose his soul. Because this whole little party has an end date. It has an expiration date. He's going to talk about that in a couple of verses. There will be a time when he comes and he sits on his judgment throne. There will be a time when I die and I go and I stand before him for judgment. And there will be a public pronouncement later of that judgment. But I will be judged and I'll find that this whole little party, this little self-party in the room of mirrors with my little party hat on myself and my gay me t-shirt on is going to come to an end. I'll find myself judged and I will lose my soul. My soul will be destroyed forever under the eternal judgment of God. And that's going to be the result of wanting to save my soul. Wanting to preserve my idea of my life for me, for myself, my way. I did it my way. Yeah, you'll lose your soul, friend. You'll lose your soul. On the other hand, losing equals finding. (laughs) Number two. But whoever loses his soul on account of me will find it. So again, this doesn't mean martyrdom, and it certainly doesn't mean suicide. That's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? Well, what he's been talking about. It's been talking about denying myself on account of Jesus. Notice he doesn't say save. He doesn't say whoever loses his soul on account of me will save it. No, he won't save it. He'll lose it. He'll lose what he was in Adam. He'll lose what he was apart from Christ. But he'll be saved by Jesus who saves his people from their sins. He'll be saved. But that Adam soul, that rebel soul, he will lose, and then he'll find his real life, you see. Uh, I don't, under any circumstances, save my own soul, but I do find it. I become who God created me to be. You see, we're not created to be self-willed, self-tyrant, little gods. We're created to be servants of God. And in being born again, I become what God created this race to be, a race of servants, of image bearers who reflect him, love him, serve him. And so uh, it's ironic, isn't it, that only when I lose my soul does Jesus save my soul. It's only when I let go of my soul that Jesus saves my soul. But notice also, so very importantly, and this is, this is everything, that he says, whoever loses his soul, and what, what's the next words? on account of me. And this is not, again, suicide or martyrdom. This is that I've found the pearl beyond price. I've found the treasure hidden in the field, and I'm willing to give up everything to have that. And I found in Jesus everything. I found in Jesus the fullness of God. I found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I found life. I found meaning. I found salvation. I found forgiveness. I found reconciliation to God, adoption to his family, and on and on and on. I found all that in Jesus. And for that, yes, I'll let everything go. Oh, you can have that. Send it down the drain into the sewage. I want Jesus. That's what this is about. That's the fallen world irony. Letter B, because of what really matters. Verse 26, because of what really matters. Here's the second four. For in what way will a man be benefited? And here, this is very wooden and awkward because I just want to show what Jesus puts up front. What will a man be benefited if the whole world he gains, but of his soul he suffers the loss? Or what will a man give as exchange for his soul? 
Now, this is one of those verses like the truth will set you free that's often quoted in a fragment and completely misapplied. You'll hear unbelievers who probably don't even know they're quoting Jesus who say, well, what, what good is it if you gain the world and lose your soul? And what they mean by that is, I've got to be true to myself. I've got to be true to my dreams, my principles. I've got to be me. I, know, I won't start singing, I promise. I've just got to be me and so forth and so on. And this is the song of the rebel soul. And they take these words and apply this to that. That I can't let other people put their expectations on me. What would it profit me if I gain the whole world and lose my soul? Well, that's kind of the opposite of what Jesus is actually talking about. He's not talking about that at all. What he's talking about is giving up my self-rule that Jesus might be my Lord. But it, what will a man be benefited if the whole world he gains? Well, then he d- insists on having things his way and he insists on pursuing his dreams and, and embraces the Hollywood gospel of you must follow your heart, that your heart never wants things that are wrong, so follow your heart, they say. And so I do that and I gain the whole world and I come up to God's judgment and I'm damned forever. And everything I thought I had, I lost Never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You just don't take it with you. It's all temporary. It's all on loan. And one day it'll all be gone except for our sin and our guilt and our rebellion. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Yeah, I die a very, very rich man and then I go to hell forever under the righteous wrath of God. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. And doesn't it strike you? Who made that offer to somebody in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, that would be Satan to Jesus, wouldn't it? You know, you just, all these kingdoms, I'll give them to you if you just fall down and worship me, he says. And Jesus says, um, no. You worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. And Satan just tried it again, didn't he? When Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem and die, and what does Satan say through Peter? God, have mercy on you. This will never happen to you. And so again, Jesus says, What does it benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul, which you will if you continue in rebellion against God? Paul knew these words, I'm pretty convinced, and he reflects on them. Turn to to Philippians chapter 3 with me and see Paul's reflection on this. See how he, he applied these words in his own life. So he's talked in the start of the chapter about his, his whole um, resume and his pedigree and his heritage, how wonderful it is, how he had everything and everybody admired him and he was of the greatest heritage and so forth. Uh, then in verse 7 he says, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's just like he's paraphrasing Jesus, isn't he? Because he uses the same words, gain and loss. Jesus says, what if he gains the world but loses his soul? Well, Paul says, whatever was gain, I counted loss. And then he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss. And there's the same word. Jesus uses the verb form, suffer the loss of. Paul uses the noun form, but it's the same word. I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss. There he uses the verb of all things and count them at rubbish so that I may gain. And there he uses the verb form of this word. I may gain Christ. 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Why don't you just see everything he says there is just a reflection of what Jesus says. And that's what it means in Christian faith. So that's the second reason. The third reason, letter C, because Christ's judgment is forever. Verse 27, Christ's judgment is forever. For the Son of Man is about to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will repay to each according to his activity. Well, now, that's kind of um, flexible, isn't it? (laughs) Repay to each according to his activity. So if my activity is the activity of someone who wanted to save his soul and persisted in my rebellion against God, he will repay to me according to that activity. But if I deny myself, pick up my cross and follow him, even if I lose the world, he will repay me according to my activity. There's a judgment coming, and there's no assurance of judgment before this time. The Christian, as, as is the case of Paul, may live in poverty, he may live in obscurity, he may live in pain, in persecution, he may live in utter misery. But one day Jesus comes in his glory, in his Father's glory, sits on his throne. That's when it all matters. That's when the person who's walked in him will be rewarded, and that reward is eternal. Nobody can ever take it away. It's eternal in the heavens, preserved for us, as Peter says, kept for us. One day it will be ours, and nothing can reverse it, or tax it, or confiscate it, or inflate it, or deflate it, or do anything to it. It's ours in Christ. But on the other hand, even though it looks like somebody who's rebelling and shaking his fist against heaven every day, That day is coming. And as the scriptural phrase says it, be sure your sin will find you out. Christ's judgment is forever. A person may think he gains the world, but Hebrews 9 says it is appointed to men to die once, and then comes judgment. And that judgment is forever. Great news for converts, terrible news for rebels. But this is the reality of it. This is the reality. And it's the third and last reason. So, concluding our thoughts on this, this is the mindset with which we must begin the Christian life. If somebody wants to begin the Christian life, if he wants to know Christ, if he wants to walk with Christ, praise the Lord. That means the Holy Spirit has worked in his soul. And what he needs to do is he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross, and get to following Jesus. That's what you need to do at the beginning of your Christian life. But it's also the exact mindset that must follow us throughout our Christian life. What does Luke 9.23 say? Daily. Daily, we should remind ourselves. It would be not a bad way to start the day. To remind myself today, I deny myself, I'm going to pick up my cross, and I'm going to follow Jesus by the grace of God. Listen, I say this to you very earnestly. I know it's been a time when we've seen many people who once we admired as Christians and they just have shown 
horrible colors. They've turned out to be, have feet of clay. Some of them have completely apostatized. I will tell you something, and it's rare that I say something with no qualification, but I can almost say this with no qualification. It's just against my nature, but I'm pretty sure that in every case, you can trace every apostasy to a failure to do this, to an unwillingness to do this. You find someone who once named Christ and now turns away from him. I guarantee you this is someone who did not deny himself, did not take up his cross, did not follow Christ. He may have skipped the first two because he saw some things about Jesus he liked. He liked the idea of forgiveness. Who doesn't like that? He liked the idea of eternal life. He liked the idea of being able to use fame as a Christian leader. He liked these things. So he just skipped the deny yourself and pick up your cross part. But you can't do that. If we're not doing the first two, we're not doing the third. That's what Jesus says. This is the path. So if somebody can fall away from Christ, and it often happens when they come to some point where being loyal to Christ would mean that the world is really going to make fun of them. They're going to lose those cushy assignments and those chairs and the invitations to conferences. They're going to lose friends. It's going to cost their ego, their pride in some way. Now, standing with Christ on homosexuality or sexuality or on creation or or on the very concept of law, uh, that's going to lose me friends. And I didn't really sign on for that. Well, then that means you really didn't deny yourself. And you really didn't pick up your cross. And you really haven't been following Christ. This is the all or nothing of a Christian life. So you say, perhaps we're all saying, well, I, I see that. I totally agree with that. Well, let me do my best to make, it, to make sure that this is uncomfortable to all of us at some point. Because if it isn't uncomfortable to all of us at some point, I really haven't done my job very well. When this really comes to bear is not when you hear me preach something that warns your heart. It's when you hear me preach something that offends It's when you hear me preach something that offends you, but it's biblical. You hear me preach something that goes against your way of thinking, but it's biblical. You hear me preach something that calls into question the way you handle relationships or your life, but it's biblical. What do we do then? And for me, when I read something that is rubs me the wrong way and is hard and not easy and threatening and difficult. So then what do we do? What do we do? Do we try to find a way around it? Do we find another church where we won't hear it? This is what a lot of people do. Or do we, I don't know, just just taking a stab here, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. And realize that this is the word of Jesus, and to follow Jesus means to follow Jesus. Not lead, not negotiate, follow. And the places where it's most real are the places where it's most challenging and most hard. Everything in our Christian life hangs on the answer to that question. What do we do when we hear, read something that's challenging, that's hard, that's uncongenial to us? What do we do? Everything hangs on that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these clear words from your word. Thank you for your son who always speaks the truth and nothing but the truth to us. 
And again, we pray that the Holy Spirit will use these words in our hearts to your glory and to our blessing. This is the way of joy. This is the way of life. This is the way of eternal gladness and rejoicing. It's the way of Christ. And we pray that you'll help us to learn. It's a day-by-day way, and each day has its new challenges and struggles. So help us to walk day-by-day with our Savior. And we thank you for the fullness of life that comes in the knowledge of Him. In Jesus' name, amen.